All right, let's get started and continue in John chapter 17. If you've got your Bibles, open up to John chapter 17. This is a special chapter. This is Jesus' prayer for his disciples and for us. Last week we looked at the first part and today we're going to finish it off. So I'll pray for us and we'll get stuck into it. Father, I thank you, Lord, for this insight into the prayer life of Jesus and we get to see what's important in his heart, what he considers important and therefore what we should consider important too. So I just pray that you help us to glean from this, to understand that this is the heart of God being revealed here in Jesus' prayer, his heart, his desire for us and what's going to bless us the most and what's going to bring him the most glory. So help us to listen and to learn as we read your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So you can break this down to three requests. There's more, but just very quickly. Three requests that Jesus is praying for the disciples and for us. Father, keep them in verses 11 and 12. This is just a quick summary from last week. And it says, Father, keep them through your name, those whom you have given me. So through your name. So Jesus' request is rooted in the name or character of God. And God is glorified by the completion of his work in us. God will finish what he's begun. And one thing I said last week was our continuing on in Jesus is not left to our efforts alone. The world, the flesh, and the devil are so mighty, so persuasive, and so seductive, we could never keep ourselves in our own efforts. If we stay with Jesus, it is because Jesus has prayed for us, Father, keep them. So just remember that your life is an answered prayer. You are being kept in the hands of God because Jesus prayed that. And the Father always answers Jesus' prayers because he's always asking according to the will of the Father. It's pretty cool, eh? All right. The second request was sanctify them. Verses 17 to 19. He says, Sanctify them by your truth. So sanctify means to be set apart for God's special pleasure and use. It implies holiness, being set apart from the corruption of the world and for God's use. And Jesus didn't leave the disciples to sanctify themselves. He prayed for their sanctification. So this process, just like the keeping process, is not left to us alone. It is a work of God in us and through us. And one of the main points in that one was that it's sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So the dynamic behind sanctification is truth. And we find truth in the word of God, in the person of God. Jesus is the word. He is truth. And as we read the word and we grow to become more like Jesus, we read, we hear and we understand and apply the word of God. Now, the third main point from verse 20 onwards is unity. So we'll read from verses 20 to 26 together. So I'm reading for the New King James. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, 
that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me, and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. What a beautiful passage. It's the unity of the church, and in the prayer of Jesus described here. So, let's look at verse 21. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I'd like to start with a quote from A.W. Tozer. He says, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to each other? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshippers meeting together, each one looking away to Christ, are nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. So that's the basic, I've told you the whole message this morning. That's it, all right? As we look together to God and love Him, then we'll automatically just love each other more. And uh, here's a, a practical quote from Chuck Smith. Prayer for unity. How the squabbles, fighting, and division in the church must hurt our Heavenly Father and the Son who prayed that they all may be one. And his prayer is that we would be one so the world may believe that you sent me. If we bring division to the body of Christ, we are working directly contrary to the prayer of Jesus and we are blowing our witness to the world. The witness of the unity of the church is a powerful evidence of who God is as he brings together diverse people from different backgrounds and makes them one. Division in the body drives people away. They can have that anywhere. So, that's a quote from Chuck Smith and just the the consequences of division. It destroys our witness. We're basically telling people who God is by the way we behave as Christians. Think about that. So keep in mind that it was after talking about truth in verse 14 that Jesus prays his people might be one here in verse 21. Ephesians 4.15 says we are to speak the truth in love. Very good. Because 
Love without truth is hypocrisy, while truth without love is brutality. Speak the truth in love because love without truth is hypocrisy, while truth without love is brutality. And here's an illustration to help you understand that. If I speak the truth without love, it's like a fire without warmth. You get the light, but there's no warmth. And who wants to be in a room in a cold night with light but no warmth? If I speak love without truth, however, it's like a blaze without light. And who wants to be in the dark? The idea is to have light and warmth. Unity is based upon telling the truth in love. Not always easy, but absolutely necessary. Now, there's a funny example from times past. Such a powerful evangelist was George Whitfield that 30,000 people would regularly attend his open-air meetings. So anointed and eloquent was he, history records many orators and actors would come just to watch him. Charles Wesley, a contemporary of Whitfield's, was also preaching to multitudes. Yet so diverse were the views of these two men on certain doctrines, they took out advertisements in the newspapers explaining why they believed what they did and why the other was amiss. Can you believe that? People thought these men hated each other, until one reporter asked Whitfield, Tell me, Mr. Whitfield, do you expect to see Charles Wesley in heaven? No, answered Whitfield. He's going to be so close to the throne, and I'm going to be so far back, I'll never see him. So, these guys didn't let the differences in doctrine affect their fellowship. And they esteemed each other as being better than themselves. Now, in the church today, there's a lot of, oh, I think this, and I think I'm right, which means you must be wrong. And that means I'm better than you, and I'm more spiritual than you. And we have this division going on because of that. So these guys had different views doctrinally and very different flavors in ministry, but they had unity through love in their diversity. And that's what Jesus is praying for. Verse 22. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. So, glory here is the honor due to Jesus as an obedient son. It's not speaking about the glory he already had in time past. So, in the same way, we receive glory and honor because of our obedience. God honors us as we honor him. So that's the honor it's talking about here. It's not talking about the glory, as it says later, which I already had with you. Now, unity. Just digging in a bit here. There are different kinds of unity. So the first one I'm going to talk about is organizational unity, where there is centralization and a governing body. And a good example of this is the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages when there was literally one united ecclesiastical body covering all of Europe. Okay, think back to that time. So if you think that this unity is what God was talking about, let's look at the effects. All right, Was this the great age? Was there a deep unity of faith? Did men and women find themselves increasingly drawn to this faith and come to confess Jesus Christ to be their Savior and Lord? Because that's what Jesus said would happen. 
if we have unity, then people will be drawn to us, right? And many women would believe on him. Not at all. On the contrary, the world believed the opposite. Spurgeon once wrote about this era. The world was persuaded that God had nothing to do with that great, crushing, tyrannous, superstitious, ignorant thing which called itself Christianity. And thinking men became infidels. And it was the hardest possible thing to find a genuine, intelligent believer north, south, east or west. Strong words from Spurgeon. So this type of unity is not what we need. It's not what the Lord prayed for. Also, if you look back into the book of Acts, you won't find this kind of unity. All the churches were basically independent of each other. And what was their common ground? Their faith in God and the scriptures. So they just went back to the scriptures for their guidance. And that includes the Old Testament and the New Testament teachings of Paul, Peter and John, etc., Jude. So what about today? Do we still find emphasis on organizational unity in the church today? Well, we still got the Catholic Church, but you've also got the liberal church. And you've probably heard the World Council of Churches and other councils of churches and you've heard of denominational mergers and, and so forth. This is always striving for this kind of unity. But remember, it's not what Christ was praying for and it's not the answer to our problems. So another type of unity that we don't need is conformity. So we've done organizational unity, now we're looking at unity by conformity. That is an approach to the church that would make everyone alike or similar to each other. Again, I don't believe this is the kind of unity Jesus is looking for in this prayer. And guess what? The church, I believe, that comes closest to this era is the evangelical church. I could be wrong. You can stone me later if you want, but that's okay. But from my point of view, the evangelical church seems to strive for an identical pattern of behavior and doctrine among its members. I've noticed that within the evangelical church, there is a lot of division based on differences in doctrine and preferences or behavior or types of ministries or ways of ministering. People kind of divvy themselves up into different groups because of preferences and different ways that people minister. So this doesn't work either. So in reality, there should be the greatest diversity among Christians. Within the Christian church, there should be huge diversity. There's diversity of culture, personality, interests, lifestyle, worship, music, and other preferences. So, you know, if you're a surfer, who are you going to share the gospel with? Surfers. You're going to be in the waves, you know. That's your ministry. If you like diving, what, what will you do? You go out diving and share the gospel with those you like diving with. And if you like walking, then you'll find people to walk with and share the gospel with them. So the way we do things is completely individual. So putting expectations on people to minister or evangelize or worship in a certain way is dangerous, I believe, and limits God's work in the church. If you look through the Gospels and the book of Acts, it's hard to find an example of where God did the same thing twice. Okay, for example, how many times did God open the doors of a prison at midnight while his servants were praising him? Only once. How many times did God rescue someone by sending an angel to lead them out of a prison? Only once. So, Variety is a part of God's person. Life with God is exciting. You never know what God is going to do or how he will come to the rescue. Because in your life, he will rarely do the same thing twice. 
you're going to have to learn to trust him. And that's why I believe why he does that, because we can never really predict where the help's going to come from next, what he's going to do to answer our prayers. For example, Marissa and I were in America, and we were broke, okay? And we prayed for money. That's what you usually pray for if you're broke, right? God, you've got us over here studying at Bible College. You need to provide for our needs That's if you want us to stay. And God didn't give us any money. I think he actually uh, he gave us like $100. There was $100 in an envelope, and that was the only money we received for the entire time. Instead, he gave us free food and free accommodation and free tuition and unpaid work over the summer break, which meant we had someone to live and food and board. Now, there's no way if you had asked us beforehand that we could have ever guessed even a small part of God's plan for our lives or how he would provide for us in that situation over those two years. So don't try and put God in a box. From my experience, if you have experienced God working in your life in a certain way, then it's very unlikely you will find someone else with the same story. True? All right. We are all so different. And another example of how the evangelical churches try to systematize ministry is the bus ministry craze that swept through the US a few years ago, like it might be 15, 20 years ago now. So one church, led by the Spirit, bought buses and bused lots and lots of children to their church. They had this massive Sunday school. It was a hugely successful ministry. Someone looked at this and said, this is how to grow our churches. We need buses. So they wrote a book explaining what had happened and how it was done. And many churches read the book and bought buses. But it didn't work for them. Most of them ended up selling their buses after having wasted a whole lot of time and money. But imagine what would have happened if they had been more open to being led by the Holy Spirit. What he wanted for them. Instead of trying to copy someone else's success story. So the main point here is that conformity generally results in works of the flesh. Human effort and a quenching of the Spirit. So you look to the Gospels, the book of Acts, to the epistles, and see how general the guidelines are for how to minister, worship, and evangelize. So in saying that, truth is truth and we must guard it, but how we communicate that truth is not limited to a single method or culture. Most revivals and church movements petered out or you know, kind of became obsolete because men looked at what had been successful, at how God had worked in the past, and basically legislated that that is how things must be done until Christ returns in our denomination. Unfortunately for them, the Holy Spirit likes to swap and change his methods because times and opportunities come and go, and they were left behind to reminisce about a glorious past while the Holy Spirit had to find someone else who was willing to listen to carry on his work, to take advantage of a new opportunity for ministry which required a different way of operating. So uniformity is dull. It's like going to the supermarket and having rows and rows of Wheaties and nothing else. All right, imagine that. All the breakfast cereal is gone except Wheaties. Okay? We don't want that in our churches. We want variety because God is a God of variety. So the gospel is cross-cultural. Remember that. Okay, food, clothing, music, dance, and the way people communicate are all very different around the world. The gospel doesn't make everyone the same as each other as far as culture goes, 
instead it makes everyone like Jesus in their person and character. It's an internal thing that happens. So, one last point regarding conformity and why it causes division. People tend to look to their own success story or their own preferences. And if someone else is different to them, then they must be less spiritual or less mature than me. And these little things become more important than the big picture. How God is working or wants to work in the church. Love is replaced with criticism. Common arguments revolve around what Bible version you read, what songs to sing, or even how they are sung. Church, government, and you can go on in the church. There's heaps of things that people get caught up on. So I believe that there's a warning in the scriptures about mangering of the minors the incidental and non-essential things. So when I say minor things, they're incidental and non-essential doctrines or things. And it's found in Matthew 23, 23 to 24. And it's Christ warning the Pharisees. He says, What sorrow awaits you teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. So you're straining out the little things, but missing out the big things. So what is the most important part of the new covenant? What is the new commandment that Jesus has given us? Love one another, that's it. As I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. This is how the world will know that we are his disciples. So I may be right, or the thing, I might have right doctrine. Now remember that we all think we're right, right? True? We all think we're right. But if I'm not loving my brethren, my brothers and sisters in Christ, then I've missed the point completely. So even if your doctrine is right, but you're not loving, then you're straining out the gnats, those little tiny insects, but swallowing camels, so to speak. And unfortunately, what sorrow awaits me or any person as I separate myself from the body of Christ because of minor differences in preference and doctrine. And I want to read with you Philippians 1, 9-11 from the Amplified Version. And this is a fantastic verse which helps us to understand this more. I'm going to verse 8 actually. For God is my witness, how I long and pursue you all with love in the tender mercy of Jesus Christ himself. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more and extend to its fullest development in knowledge and all keen insight, that your love may display itself in greater depth of acquaintance, that's relationships, and more comprehensive discernment. And we think, aha! So now we need to get on those Bible versions, right? No. Verse 10. So that you may surely learn to sense what is vital and approve and prize what is excellent and of real value. Real value. Recognizing the highest and the best and distinguishing the moral differences and that you may be untainted and pure and unerring and blameless so that with hearts sincere and certain and unsullied you may approach the day of Christ, not stumbling nor causing others to stumble. So, talks about discernment here, and discernment that God wants us to have is that we can discern what is of real value. What do we need to stand up for as far as truth goes? 
and what can we let go? So there's some questions we can ask from this. Am I pursuing my brethren with love or judging them with a critical spirit? Is my love abounding for God and for others? Am I discerning or sensing what is excellent or of real value? I.e., or that is, am I focused on what is important, which is honoring and loving Jesus and loving my brothers and sisters, or am I more focused on minor, incidental, non-essential doctrines and issues? So in Proverbs, it says that love covers a multitude of sins. In the New Testament, we could say that love covers a multitude of preferences and non-essential doctrines especially in the evangelical church. Again, I'm not advocating that we sacrifice truth for unity. If there are errors in important doctrines, for example, in the book of Galatians, there's legalism or any other false gospel, we must stand firm and never compromise so we can pass on the true gospel to those who come after us. But if the differences are minor, then we need to have grace to overlook our differences, remembering that none of us are perfect. Now, think about this, right? Who hasn't changed their opinion on at least one doctrine over the last five years? Who hasn't changed their mind on one doctrine over the last five years? Now, did you disfellowship yourself from yourself because you no longer agreed with yourself? Seriously. (laughs) But what do we do when we have a disagreement with others? Oh, no grace there. That can be the attitude. Overall, I'm not pointing fingers at people in here. I'm just, you know, overall, it's the trend that's around, you know, between fellowships especially. But we show ourselves grace when we change our mind. What about showing other people grace? Where they're at. We're all learning and growing. We need to be patient with each other. Now, does the Bible say that? Actually, it does. So, Ephesians 4, 2-4 says, Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. So i just read that again. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called to one glorious hope for the future. So, the unity for which Jesus prayed is not organizational unity or a unity achieved by conformity. So what kind of unity is it? Well, I would say that this unity is a unity parallel to the unity that exists within the Godhead, or similar to that which exists within the Godhead. Because Jesus says it in these terms, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, I in them and you in me. That's verse 21 and 23. May they be brought to complete unity. And if you want to go to somewhere else in the Bible to have this explained more, you can go to 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6. It says, There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways 
but it is the same God who does the work, the different work in all of us. So I'm going to read that again. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same Spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, the way we minister, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. Now, here's a basic definition of unity that I got. Summarized from those verses is... The church is to have a spiritual unity involving the basic orientation, desires, and will of those participating. It's not about the how, but about the why. Why are we doing this? It's not how we do it, but why we do it so much. So this means that the church is to have a spiritual unity involving the basic orientation, desires, and will of those participating. It's not about the how, but about the why. So, should we strive for unity? Well, I don't think we have to because we've already been given it. So, why do I say this? Because unity is only found in Christ as we are led and controlled by the Spirit. That's why, as we read before in Ephesians 4.3, it says, Endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What does it say there? To keep the unity of the Spirit. We are already in Christ. We are already unified together. So unity only happens when we are all under the authority of the Spirit and not being dominated by a flesh or a sinful nature. What we should be striving for is to deepen our relationship with Jesus and with his brethren, our brothers and sisters in Christ. My focus needs to become more like Jesus and to grow more and more into his image. And as his desires become my desires, his priorities become my priorities, his love becomes my love, his truth becomes my truth, what he loves becomes what I love, and what he hates I grow to hate, then I can't help but love and work together with my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because of the work that the Spirit does in our hearts. Unity is a byproduct, it's a fruit of our abiding in Christ of having an abiding relationship in Christ where we speak the truth in love. It's like we're all being tuned to the same tuning fork. Remember that initial quote from Tozer? It's like we've all been tuned to the same tuning fork so we can live and work harmoniously with each other. Instruments out of tune sound terrible. And sometimes we see that amongst ourselves in different congregations. We're out of tune and it's not very harmonious music. We clash, we misunderstand each other at times. But when we forgive and when we love, God tunes us up and we start together to make beautiful music called love. So again, the warning is if we focus only on unity at the expense of Christ and truth, it will end up with organizational unity or conformity which do not honor God. It's dangerous. Right, verse 23, back into John 17. It says, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So I in them and you in me. So there's a unity of compromise or fear of coercion 
but that's not what it's talking about here. You know, you go to different countries around the world, and like China is a good example. They want unity. How are they doing it? Fear and coercion. Other countries base it on compromise, like the Baha'i religion is based on that unity of compromise. Let's all believe everything so we all believe the same kind of thing. Jesus wants a unity based on love and a common identity in Jesus. And notice that true unity, the harmonious working together of all kinds of different people for the cause of the kingdom of God, as they led by the Spirit of God, that is the main evidence of the existence of God in our lives. If we as Christians claim to have the source of love himself living in us, but we ourselves are not loving, then why would the world believe us about anything else we say about God? Love is the big thing. If we're not loving each other, people will see that and they will say they're not real. So, verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. So, all Christians, born-again Christians, are going to heaven. Why? Because the promise here from Jesus, the promise in John 14.1, many mansions, and also the price he paid. I just want to read one verse to you. I love this assurance that God gives us about our eternal destiny. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. That's 1 Thessalonians 5.10. Hold on to that promise in the hard times. And in that verse it also says, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am. So this is the consummation of unity. It's a promise of togetherness. So we have togetherness in our hearts where we all have the same desires, the same love for the same person. But one day we're all going to be in the same place. Now, Jesus' strong desire and prayer for his followers is that they would be kept, sanctified and unified. Are they our desires? Do you think about them? Do you pray for them for people? When you pray for people, do you pray that God would keep them or protect them, that he would sanctify them, change them, and that there would be unity in those relationships, love in those relationships? Or are we praying for different things? I suggest that we should be praying for the same kind of things that Jesus was praying for. Verse 26, And I have declared to them your name, and will declare it, that the love with which you love me may be in them, and I in them. So I have declared your name. So earlier on in the chapter, and we covered it last week, Jesus was manifesting or revealing his name through his works, through his actions, living it out. But now declaring speaks of speaking it out. And you can look at many examples. I am the bread of life. I am the door, I am the way, I am the vine, I am the truth, I am the light, for example. So Jesus not only showed people with his actions, with his life, but he also spoke it. And we need to do the same. We first need to live it, and that then gives us the authority to speak it. Does that make sense? So don't speak it if you're not living it. 
But on the other hand, do you need to be perfect to speak it? No. No, you just need to have your heart right. That the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. So this prayer concludes with the great secret of Christian living, Jesus and his love indwelling the believer. You can go to Galatians for that. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And here's a quote from somebody, I'm not sure who. It says, As we treat people as though they are already glorified, as we speak the truth in love, that we might be unified, as we keep those whom the Lord has given us on our hearts through intercession, as we manifest or live out as well as declare the nature of the Father, as we give people the exact word and share with them the scriptures, as we finish the work he gives us to do, we will be doing the very things Jesus said our lives should be about. And that's the summary of the whole chapter, of the things Jesus did. Now, if you do that, what's the world going to say? You're a fool. They're not going to congratulate you. They're not going to pat you on the back. They're going to say you're a fool because our values are different to their values. But when we get to heaven, if we've been faithful, we'll hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And that's our eternal success. So just before we have communion, I just want to go through some concluding thoughts about unity before we take communion. We are a part of a family, a big family, the family of God. That includes all denominations, the true believers within all those churches. And according to the scriptures, our Father is proud of every one of us. Are we perfect? Of course not. But it does depend how you look at it. Are we perfect? Yes, we are. <laughs> Positionally, we are perfect. Okay. Hebrews 10.14 says that by one offering, God has Notice has is past tense. God has perfected forever those who are sanctified. Now, am I sanctified yet completely? Look at my life and you'll say, no. Okay. Am I perfected? No. (laughs) Practically, but in God's eyes. And sanctification is a practical thing, but God already sees me as perfect, as not just positionally perfect, but practically perfect too. So. Think about your friends and family, your other brethren, and realize that they're on a journey, and that's where we're all going to finish up. Perfect. Before the Lord. Positionally and practically. So, why is the Lord so concerned about unity? I'm going to give you two reasons, very quickly. Pleasure and power. Psalm 133, verse 1. Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Just a quick thought, as a parent, if you see your kids playing together, sharing toys and being kind to one another, you're blessed, yeah? But if you see your kids fighting and bopping one another, you're grieved. It makes you really sad. So the same is true of our Heavenly Father. Seeing his kids together with all the various personalities and characteristics, yet dwelling together in unity and loving each other, causes him to say, Behold how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. So we bless our Heavenly Father when we choose to love each other. Then power. Here's a verse to 
give us something to think about. Proverbs chapter 30, verse 27. The locusts have no king, yet they go forth, all of them by bands or ranks. So if a single cricket or grasshopper lands in your garden, that's easy to kill it, all right? But they have a secret, locusts. They don't come at one at a time, do they? They come in vast numbers. They don't have a king, but instinctively they travel across a country into a community and are able to devour everything in sight simply by their unity. They all work together for destruction. (laughs) So too, the world says to us as individual believers, quit bugging me, you little cricket, and they brush us off and put us down. But when God's people, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, move in unity without king, papal, denominational headquarters, people from different denominations working together, we can storm the very gates of hell and make a lasting, permanent impact. So the Christian community is splintering, and that is why, more than ever, we need to hear the heart of the Lord in this area, that we might be one as a family in our homes, not just in church, but in our homes, as a congregation and as a body overall. So, if the prayer of Jesus is for unity and cohesion, what is the program of Satan? Division, right? So I'm just going to quickly run through some of the tactics that he uses to bring division, so we can be aware of his tactics and we can overcome them. Now, this applies again, both in our congregation here and our families and in between churches. So, here's a little story. Genesis chapter 4, 3 to 5. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift, the best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. This made Cain very angry, and he looked dejected. So, competition. If we compete against each other, now it's not the main point of that passage, of course, but you can get it from that as an application. If we're competing against each other, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, if one part of the body is blessed, then the rest of them should rejoice, because we are all part of the same body. If one person is blessed, then we are all blessed. So if a brother or sister is blessed, don't be intimidated, don't feel jealous. Instead, rejoice. Don't compete with them and say, well, you get that, I should be able to get that too, that position or whatever. Just to follow on from there, Jesus showed us what he thought of competition at the Pool of Bethsaida. The conventional wisdom of the day was that whenever the water was stirred, the first one in would get healed. When Jesus came on the scene, he went to the guy at the very back, the one who was not fighting to get ahead, the one forgotten by everyone else, and said, rise, take up your bed. Let's get out of this place of competition. Trying to be first into the water. So that's the heart of Jesus. Now, the next one is gossip or exposure of sin. You remember Noah, after the flood, he planted a vineyard, and he made some wine, and he got drunk. Now, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw that his father was naked and went outside and told his brothers. Was that the right thing to do? Then Shem and Japheth took a robe, held it over their shoulders and backed into the tent to cover their father. As they did this, they looked the other way so they would not see him naked. So this gossip thing can easily be, oh, let's pray for this person. 
did you hear about this? We need to pray for this person because when really it's just a, a Christianized form of gossip. So be careful. We need to cover sins, not expose them. Because if you're talking to someone about someone else, guess what? When you see them talking to somebody else, they might be talking about you and you start thinking, well, I know that person talks about other people. Are they talking about me now? And you start to get this paranoia happening. And uh, everyone's worried about what everyone else is saying. So, as Proverbs says, where there is no wood, there can be no fire. So if you refuse to listen, the gossip will stop. And Proverbs also says, he that covers a transgression seeks love. So Ham exposed his father's sin, but his brothers covered it. Now legalism is another one. Genesis 21, 8 and 9. And the child grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast the same day that Isaac was weaned. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had borne unto Abraham mocking. So Galatians gives us the interpretation of this. Ishmael represents the law, the old covenant. Isaac represents grace, the new covenant. And the law, legalism, always mocks grace. The law will always come down on grace. We will find fault. So this attitude of us that can be in our heart, it can creep in there very subtly, very unknowingly, and we can start to make fun of others, we can start to criticize others, we can start to put other people down because they're not keeping our prescribed standards or rules. So don't let cultural traditions or personal convictions cause division between you and any other believer. Another thing that causes division in the church is favoritism. And you probably know this story too. Genesis 25, 27 and 28. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So favoritism is also very bad. This Favoritism in the family caused a lifelong tension between these two brothers. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul warns of the same danger. You're carnal or immature or fleshly, he said to the Corinthian believers, not because of some gross and obvious sin, but because you have your favorite teacher. Some follow me, others follow Apollos, others Peter. This ought not be. So favoritism can be expressed in putting teachers and pastors on pedestals too. Jealousy is another one. This is a story of Joseph. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him yet the more. So when we look at someone else's power, position or possessions and we think that would make me happy, then jealousy is what happens, right? Joseph was given this position of prominence and then he prophesied that they would all one day bow down to him. And his brothers hated him for it. They were jealous. I just want to help you to remember that when you look at someone who is successful in the body of Christ, who God is using, remember that the path to prominence is often strewn with pits and prisons which you don't know about. So, all through the Bible, 
people who God used, like David and Moses and, and anyone you want to think of, there's always a path of preparation. And that's a difficult path. So before you start being jealous of people, you need to think about, well, what cost, what did it cost them as God changed them and worked in their lives to get them to where they are? So like Paul, learn to be content where the Lord has planted you. Philippians 4.11 So competition, gossip, exposure, legalism, favoritism, jealousy are all the enemy's tools to create division in the church. So what's the pathway to unity? Well, it's not rallies and crusades and let's get all the churches together, have a unity rally. No. And it's not also standing for a a political cause like same-sex marriage. Let's get all the churches together and get behind this. No. That's not going to produce lasting unity either. The only thing that produces unity is the cross of Christ. And so we come to the cross and we realize that, guess what? We're all the same. It doesn't matter what denomination you go to. It doesn't matter how you worship or all those things. The bottom line is that we are all sinners and we're all saved by grace. And that should cause us to be humble, have a humble attitude, and just to love each other. Someone said, no matter where we've come from or what our flavor might be, we all eat of the same bread. We all drink of the same blood. It's communion. And how important it is because it is there we find all the dials set back to zero, all the divisions melted away as we are reminded that his body and blood are our common ground. We are part of his body. Remember that we are part of one body and that we've all experienced his forgiveness. So we can pray something like, Lord, remind me of what I am and aware I've been in order that I might look lovingly and mercifully on every sister, on every brother, on every church who is preaching your name and has received you as their saviour. So as we take communion this morning, just be thinking of unity, but not organisational unity or conformity, but rather loving each other as Christ loved us and overlooking our faults and differences and instead just esteeming the other person being better than yourself and the world will see a change in us 